I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews in chapter 10. Uh, we began the study uh, of the book of Hebrews uh, last uh, fall. Uh, it's an tr absolutely tremendous uh, letter, uh, deep and, and rich uh, of application, rooting us in the promises of God uh, that permeate through the scriptures. It's written to uh, Jewish believers, uh, most likely living in Jerusalem at a time of, of deep persecution, uh, just prior to the fall of the temple, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. We don't know who wrote the book, although theories abound. That's a fun conversation to have for uh, Bible nerds uh, uh, to have as to who they think. And you can think whatever you want. We don't know. It's just not been there. The likelihood is not the Apostle Paul, much to the chagrin of those who have their old Bibles that say Hebrews was written by Paul, just as scholars have said, it just doesn't seem to be his style of writing. Nevertheless, what he teaches, the writer of Hebrews teaches, is all consistent with what God says, and he roots us in the glorious promises that are ours in Christ. We begin in Hebrews chapter 10 this morning. Some of it might seem kind of like, well, we've covered this ground before. Uh, that is one of the things that you will notice as you study the book of Hebrews is uh, it is not a straight line. It is circling around the mountain. It covers something, goes on, and comes back to it, and ties it, and it ties an incredible knot by the time we are done studying this. Uh, but at the same time, the passage we have before us this morning is a wonderful place to restart uh, our study. And so we'll be looking at Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 18 this morning. Hear the word of God. For since the law has, it has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have, you, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said the above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that, uh, by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. The word of our God, let's pray. Father, we, we come this morning 
uh, to your word uh, and pray that you would speak to us by it. May your spirit not only enlighten our minds, but open our hearts that we may not only understand, but that we would uh, be changed and transformed from the inward out. We pray, Lord, that you would give us, give us clarity uh, of thought as these words can be uh, clunky, confusing, and yet as we are able to see, uh, they present us the beautiful picture of your glorious grace calls us to to you, that we may live with you, and with you at work within us. Lord, bless us and be at work with your word, giving us not only understanding, but lives that are transformed. We pray to this for your glory, and for our joy and the benefit of all who are around us. We pray this in all things in the incomparable name of Christ Jesus. Amen. I read a bizarre story relatively recently. Let me share the news article that I, at least uh, I have kind of sliced down for you. A 37-year-old art lover from Poland has fallen in love with a young brown-haired girl hanging laundry in one of his paintings. The man first saw the artwork painted by Antony Maria Kwik. I don't know that I'm pronouncing that right, probably not. First saw the artwork uh, in 2001 in an art gallery, and he was fascinated by the beauty of the girl that it portrayed. He bought the painting on the spot and spent the last decade searching for the girl. After years of failure tracking down the girl who has the brown hair that shimmers in the sun, the man is now looking for a priest who will agree to marry him with the painted version of the girl of his dreams. He said, I don't know what the laws of this sort of thing are in Poland, but if I can't do it here, I'll go somewhere else and do it. It doesn't say, but I assume California. But anyway, that's, um, <laughs> sorry for those of you from California, I just couldn't resist. But anyway, um, this story is 10 years old. It's from 2011. It took the, so the decade prior to uh, that, as the man found the painting in 2001, and spent the next 10 years looking for this woman. And I have absolutely no idea what has happened between uh, the writing of this article and, and now, although it's hard for me to imagine anything good uh, has come from it, considering the just flat-out weirdness uh, of, of a guy who, uh, you know, the romanticism might be fine about falling in love with, with a model, but then willing to marry the, the painting itself. It just absolutely bizarre and, and, and strange. But imagine, if you will, for, for just a moment, that the guy had, between 2011 and now, or you know, sometime here in the near future, um, although I guess he's married to a painting by now, but he, he actually meets and, and finds and, and meets the, 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 the model who modeled for the painting. And because of his totally fanatical love, um, he proposes and she, who I would assume have to be nuts, uh, agrees uh, to marry him. And so they get married. But over time, because she's a living, breathing person who has personality, views, ideas of her own, he decides that he's more enamored with the painting than he is with the real person. And so while he's married to both women, the same woman in both art form and in, in real life, he spends his time and he gives his attention and his affection to the painting rather than to the real person. What would you think of a person who does something like that? Weird doesn't begin to cover it, as far as I'm concerned. Institutionalized might be a word that gets a little closer. 
because it is just absolutely, it makes no sense. The whole idea is, is ridiculous. And yet in a very real sense, that's, that's what the writer of Hebrews is addressing in this particular passage for us. The, the, the essence of the mindset of a man who would be more fascinated with the image than he would with the reality is, is exactly what he is addressing to the original writers of the readers, the original readers of, of this letter to the Hebrews. So again, the writer of Hebrews, as he's writing, he's writing to, uh, to believers, to uh, Jewish believers who are, uh, they've grown up uh, Jewish tradition, who had heard of Jesus Christ, believed in his death and his resurrection, and they have committed themselves to him, had been worshiping him, walking with him for a time. And yet over the time that they have become believers, the persecution in Rome and the area where they live has heightened. It's coming both from the, the government, from, from the world that's around them. It's coming from uh, their family members who feel that they have been rejected because they are following this Jesus and not necessarily uh, continuing with their uh, the ways uh, and traditions that they, that they grew up in. And, and as persecution goes on, they're becoming weary. They're being worn out, and we would understand that. The response to being weary and the response to the persecution for some is to reject Jesus Christ entirely and go back to the Old Testament sacrifices, the whole sacrificial system they grew up with. Perhaps that would uh, alleviate some of the tension that they have with their family, stop some of the persecution from at least one of the uh, points of, uh, of the problem. Others that were in, in the group, knowing that they, they really like this Jesus, and they appreciate and value and maybe see that they are in need of the promises uh, that Jesus has secured and given to them. Uh, nevertheless, decide, we'll keep Jesus and we'll go back at the same time. The, the word that gets used in mission circles is, is syncretism, where you're practicing two different beliefs. You kind of synthesize things together where even if they, they don't necessarily fit. Uh, but in other words, they, they don't want to reject Jesus, but they want to be fully Jewish uh, again. That's their identity. Uh, and yet they'll still uh, honor Jesus in some ways. And the writer of Hebrews is addressing these people, and he's saying, don't you understand, when you're going back to the sacrificial system, it, it might have put the, the, your sense of religion in, in your own hands. You might have felt more in, in touch with things at that point in time. But, but he says here in, in this passage, don't you recognize that the law and the sacrificial system and everything that goes with it, it's nothing but a shadow of the good things that are to come. That's the word that he uses here in this particular passage, saying that the, the law, uh, in, in, ver in verse 1, the law has, is but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. He's saying that anyone who is going to move on from Jesus Christ and turn their affection back onto the laws and the sacrificial system are doing the same thing as that man has done with the painting. He has preferred the image, the shadow, to the reality. And he's saying that to do something like that is every bit as foolish as we recognize that that man is for desiring to marry a painting rather than to continue on, or even in addition to continuing on in his search for the woman who is depicted in it. And so what this passage teaches us is this, that the single most debilitating factor that threatens to undermine a vibrant and flourishing spirituality is a failure to embrace and to enjoy the fullness of God's grace. In other words, when we prefer religion to God's grace, 
we are making the same mistake as the writer, as the, as the readers of this letter, the original readers of this letter, the same mistake as the man with the painting. The reality is, is that too often we, or many Christians, including the, we who are here, we're, we're kind of like the kid at Christmas, the young kid. It's, it's endearing when it, when it happens when they're young at Christmas. You know, you've bought this package, this gift that they really wanted, and they rip off the, the wrapping and they see the picture on the box. It's exactly what they want. And so you take the stuff out of the box and you're just preparing and you're assembling it. And, and the kid's more enamored with the box than the gift, actually. You know, when they're two or three years old, it's kind of cute. But, you know, when they're 20, 30, 40, you know, it's just a a little bit strange. And and yet, in terms of our relationship with God, that tends to be the way that we function. Too often, we're exactly like that kid. We prefer religion, something that we can measure because we're the ones that are doing it. We're the ones that are touching it. We prefer religion to being recipients of God's grace. And the writer of Hebrews is saying to us in this passage, that's foolishness, and it leads to an emptiness, and it robs us of the joy that could be ours because we're not recognizing, we're not receiving, we're not embracing the grace that God lavishes upon those who are his own. As we look at this passage, it breaks quite neatly into into three parts, essentially. Uh, Verses 1 through 4 show us the inadequacy of the sacrificial system. Uh, Verses 5 through 13, beginning into 14, uh, shows us the, the, the glorious completeness of the sacrifice of Christ. And then picking up again in, in verse 14 through verse 18, it, it gives us two applications, two promises that are consequence of Christ offering himself as our substitute, as our atoning sacrifice. So so let's begin with where the the writer begins here, with the inadequacy of the Old Testament system. It's important as we look at verse 4, it sums it up quite uh, quite clearly. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. In other words, the system itself never worked, according to the writer of, of the Hebrews. Now, saying that, it doesn't mean that the sacrificial system uh, is is meaningless, that it's insignificant, or it had no place among God's people. The sacrificial system and the sacrifices themselves were appointed by God. Uh, he's the one that designed the system. He's the one that said, this is what you will do, and, and bring the sacrifices, and here's the sacrifices that uh, that you are to bring. At the various occasions, and particularly each year at the uh, the, the Day of Atonement, the sacrifices that would become and to, to be offered, and, and, and if received, uh, people would be, um, would be you know, pardoned uh, from their sin of the past year, uh, and, and so they'd be, be good to continue on. God is the one who appointed all of those things, so that in itself would tell us that it's not insignificant. And the sacrificial system was significant, uh, it uh, played a significant role in God's plan of redemption. But as the writer here is pointing out, both by using scripture and by using logic, he says, but it it never was the means of salvation. It it played an important role for one of the things is that it it exposed the, the, there was a reminder of our condition, which was sin. Every one of us falls short of God's glory and God's standard. And as a result, um, 
we recognize that we have a condition of sin. It's, it's the condition that is common to all of humanity. And it's vitally important that we recognize that, because if you don't recognize that, you may wonder why the world's a mess and why your life's a mess and why things are not working. Uh, and, and you can try to make sense of things, but if you don't diagnose the root of the problem, then you're never going to come to a solution. And, and so the sacrifices, as the passage says here, it, it reminded people every year of their sin. The fact that they had to make a sacrifice. Why did they have to make a sacrifice? Because they had sin. So they made the sacrifice. They were reminded of their sin. Not only were they reminded of their condition, which is the foundation for finding the remedy, it's a vivid picture of just how horrendous our sin is. As Paul writes in Romans, the wages of sin is death. In other words, any sin, great or by our measure, small, warrants death. And we hear those words, and those who have grown up in church know those words, and maybe you feel a sense of gravity with it, but I suspect that if you took your family cow to camper and said, hey, I want you to butcher this in front of me as my sacrifice, uh, the blood would be a significant, vivid reminder, wow, sin is serious. Deserves death. I'm thankful, perhaps, that that which has happened to the cow didn't happen to me. But still, because of my sin, some animal had to experience that. It's bloody. It's awful. And our response to the, the image of, a, of, of the sacrifice gives us some idea of Essentially, God's, what God sees of our, our sin. It is ugly. Uh, it is disgusting. It is intolerable. And, and so the sacrificial system reminded everybody there is this problem in the world that we all have. It's called sin, and sin is serious. But it, it, the sacrificial system did something else as well, because when the writer here says, that this is a shadow that is pointing to the good things to come. The sacrificial system pointed to the promise by which God has always saved his people, which is by grace through faith and the promise of the Messiah. And, and faithful people uh, among the Jews from the very beginning have uh, under, understood that, that the sacrificial system was a, 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 a way of relating to God. It was as a way of participating in, in uh, God's covenant. Uh, but salvation would always come because God was going to provide one who would redeem the perfect sacrifice that was to come, the sacrifice that will be offered once and for all time, that doesn't have to be offered over and over again. And so from the very beginning, people ask, well, how were people saved in the Old Testament the same way that we are? Uh, by looking to the Christ. Now, we have the benefit of knowing the identity of the person and uh, living after he had died and, and rose again. But from the very beginning, God had revealed what his plan was going to be, and belief in that provision was always the way, by believing God and trusting in God and the provision that he was going to make for them. The sacrificial system was just a shadow. It was kind of like a model. It was a template just to remind us of that God is the one who's going to bring us salvation. And as we look at this passage, one of the things that's important to, to note, although you don't necessarily see it in any of our English translations, but the Hebrew word in, in verse 4 that's translated, at least in our ESV, take away in some other translations to atone, it says that it's possible for the blood of bulls and goats to atone for sin. 
the word in the Hebrew there is actually more literally translated as covered. And, and it's important for us to understand that it doesn't take away, or the word is related to that, the idea of atonement is covered. And so what the sacrificial system was doing was covering the sin of the people for a time. Now, that itself is a, is a really good thing. We, we understand cover, we, we get covered in a number of different ways. Uh, a few weeks ago, Isaiah and I had breakfast together, and I realized uh, as I was there, I didn't bring my wallet. So rather than seeing me go to jail, Isaiah covered my breakfast. We see covered in, in, in a broader sense. If, you know, think of a time maybe things were going a little bit hard, newlyweds, uh, you know, trying to make your way, and you got the mortgage or, or the rent payment is due, and maybe your parents or somebody else knows the situation, and so they cover your rent or your mortgage for the month. But what happens when something is covered? Because covered doesn't eliminate the debt. While Isaiah paid for the breakfast that day, the sun came up and I had breakfast another day. Now, I had it at home, so my wallet was already there, and I did, but I'd already paid for it at the grocery store. It's still, another debt continues as the, as the new day comes. If somebody covers your mortgage or covers your rent or covers your student loan, that is absolutely a wonderful gift. Uh, but the calendar is going to come, uh, and the next month, it is, payment is going to be due again. And the same was true for the sacrificial system. The sacrifices were offered, and the sins were covered. But they were not cured. The sacrifices was covered, but the fact that they offered them over and over again was an indication that even the believers at the time, those who were faithful to God, they knew that it didn't cure them. Something else was going to have to eradicate sin uh, from them entirely. The fact that they offered them over and over, they, they were covered, but the debt was going to come due later again. We see the same kind of thing in, in medicine. There are many medications that will cover our symptoms. Some of us take uh, medicines for allergies so that you can sleep at night or get through the day without hacking all over everybody who's around you. It doesn't eradicate the allergy, you still have the allergy. The reason you take the medication is because you have the condition that you're covered for however long the duration of your medication. Somebody who goes to dialysis gets relief, but they're not cured. And eventually, the condition manifests itself again. And the Old Testament system covered the sins of the people. It didn't cure them. What the writer of the Hebrews here is saying is this, but while the sins were covered uh, because of the sacrifices that were offered, the priests had offered and, and, and uh, that were all around, it was a good thing, but it was never intended to be the answer. It never solves the problem as a whole. It only pointed. It was a shadow. It was a picture of that which was to come. And then he can't contrast that, and he talks about the glorious completeness of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, of himself. And he says, but when Christ had offered for all times a single sacrifice for sins himself, he sat down at the right hand of God, which essentially was saying, job's done, it's finished. Waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So the Old Testament system of sacrifice had its benefits, it had its place, it had its significance, 
but it was never intended to be the answer. Christ's sacrifice has always been the plan for the Lord. And, and we know that because the writer of Hebrews goes back and not just saying, you know, we're looking back now and we see how this is much better uh, after the death and resurrection of Jesus. He, he goes back immediately and he starts quoting from Psalm 40, Psalm of David, but almost every Bible scholar recognizes it as a messianic psalm, that while it certainly applied to David, it foreshadowed to the, the, the greater uh, David who was to come, uh, Jesus who was born after uh, the line of David, uh, to be the eternal king. And so he's pointing to that, and from that passage we see, well, wait a second, this was not just this new discovery that came in a new dispensation after the resurrection. Apparently this was God's plan all along, and David even knew you know, several hundred years before Christ's death and resurrection that this would be the sacrifice that was going to be offered. And in this, he says, sacrifices, you know, that doesn't bring me pleasure. Uh, or, or David writing and Jesus speaking, saying that the, the sacrifices don't bring God pleasure. It's not what he, he delights in. And it, it points to the fact that he was going to provide uh, the one sacrifice. He was going to provide the spotless lamb who would be sacrificed once for all. And we see it vividly throughout the Old Testament, so it's not even just kind of this, you know, reaching at a psalm and trying to make this parallel. I, I mean, think about a passage very familiar, read oftentimes um, through Christmas and at Easter, um, but Isaiah 53, verses 2 through 6. I know you know the words, but listen again and, and listen to the significance, the fact that what it is saying that is going to free us from our sin, what's going to cure us from the problem of our sin. He grew up before us like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. In other words, he became like us. He, he, he understands he's been tempted in every way, just as we are. He was crushed for our iniquities, stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgression. I skipped a part, didn't I? So anyway, he was, uh, he, we esteemed him not. Um, he was crushed for our iniquities upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. In other words, he was sacrificed, uh, and that is what brings not just covering, but healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. In other words, this whole condition of sin. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He is the sacrifice that is bearing the punishment that our sin deserves. This is Isaiah, a few hundred years before the, uh, the coming of Christ. And, and you can look all through the Old Testament, but you know we even see the very beginning of this, at least the first revelation of it, as early as Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis 3.15, which known as theologically as the Proto-Evangelion, the first evangel, the first presentation of the gospel, uh, we see that the Lord is speaking after the fall, to the, speaking to the serpent, and he says, I will put enmity between the, you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bring your head, and uh, your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, the offspring there, the word is seed. I will put enmity between you and, and the seed of the woman. Now, those of you who are biologists know there's a problem with that. And it gets missed in a lot of the translations. Seed is much more preferable because it, it tells us, no, wait a second, there's something wrong here. Uh, because in the making of babies, the woman doesn't bring the seed to the table. So how is it going to be the seed of the woman is going to do this? Oh, maybe there's a virgin birth. 
And there's a prophecy of the virgin birth in Genesis chapter 3. So after our first parents had messed up everything, brought sin to the world, and we have the consequences, and then we live out just like our first parents in our own lives, God's response to that, the first thing that he's saying is, okay, you know, here's what's going to do. You messed up. I'm going to fix it. And I'm going to fix it by I'm going to send one who is going to do battle. You know, you're going to bruise him, but he's going to crush the enemy. He's going to bear everything in himself. The first, from Genesis chapter 3 on throughout the Old Testament, we see that it was always God's plan to provide the one who would bring us redemption, would redeem us and bring us the cure. And so as he goes in, in Isaiah 40, and, and we look at this passage, he, he, we see how it applies to Jesus. The first thing is that situation, he looks sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, and he picks it up uh, again a little bit later in verse 6, and burnt offerings and sin offerings, you, you take no pleasure. In other words, here's the problem. If we are trusting in our religious activities and what we do, the sacrifices that we make, first of all, God's the one that initiated them, but it's not because that's what brought him pleasure. He did it because it was a shadow. It was a foreshadowing of the good things that were to come. It points us to the future of Jesus. But as Jesus owns these words in Isaiah 40, we see Jesus saying this, a body you have prepared for me. And so that indicates to us that this took place prior to the incarnation. This conversation took place prior to the incarnation. A body that you have prepared for me. And Jesus came fully God, but fully man. Assumed our nature in which disobedience against God had been committed. And experienced everything that we experience, pain, hardship rejection, temptation. But the difference between him and me, him and you, is that he, even in the midst of all that, was without sin. And the reason is, as Jesus says in this passage, because in that conversation, a body you've prepared for me, I have come to do your will. So what is the will of God? One is the obedience to everything that he's got. The law that God has given, he calls us to be obedient, not just because it honors God, because this is the way he designed life to work. The commandments that God puts in the scripture are not meant to be burdensome to us. They're meant to free us to live the way that he's designed life to live. But even that becomes difficult for us. And one way or another, we kind of figure, you know, we, we either ignore or we hedge or we fudge or whatever it may be. Jesus said, I've come to do your will, and he did God's will in perfect obedience to everything God has commanded, and including from the very beginning, the intention was in order that he would go to the cross and offer himself as that once-for-all-time sacrifice. Because that was the will. The scriptures tell us it was the will of God to crush him. And the reason it was the will of God to crush him was because it was the only way that he would be able to redeem and to free the people that God had created and the people that God has loved. And so the writer goes on. Let me just read verses 8 through 10. I thought about how am I going to preach? And I thought, I can't do better than the scripture actually says. So let me give their summary, the writer of Hebrews summary. When he said the above, everything in, in verses 5 and 6 and 7, when he said the above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered in accordance with the law. They're part of the, the law system. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And so we see that it's not just that the Old Testament sacrificial system is, is inadequate, but now it's obsolete. It's never insignificant. 
it has an important purpose. But the purpose has been fulfilled at the coming of Jesus Christ, and now, therefore, it is obsolete. It'd be like you trying to talk with people on your old car phone from the, you know, from the you know, 1990s, or those who are older, 1980s and 1970s. I don't think those even work anymore, do they? I mean, we can try. It'd be kind of like kids playing with the you know, decommissioned cell phones. They can talk all they want, but it, it just doesn't work. The sacrificial system is kind of like that. People can go back to that, but it isn't. It, it, it no longer is in place because that to which it pointed has come, has done what he was intended to do, and has changed everything. He's fulfilled the promises of the new covenants. And as we look at that, we're intended to stop and to be amazed. But the writer of Hebrews goes on here, and he says, and there's, this is not just a theology lesson. It's not just, okay, stop doing this and do this. He goes on and says, there's certain things that now happen. There's certain things that are now true, certain things that are now reality for those who are God's people because of the sacrifice of Christ. And we see them in verses 14 uh, through 18. And the two things are this. We see two kind of words there. There is perfection. And I'll sum it up, forgiveness, where it says God remembers our sins no more. The word perfection we see in, in verse 14. We see it a couple of times in here. First, he says it was impossible for uh, the sacrifices to, to bring perfection. Verse 14, but by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Well, who's being sanctified? Well, everyone who's justified. Well, who is justified? Everyone who believes in Jesus Christ. Paul gives us that answer. Actually, Paul says those who are justified, he also glorifies. Well, the way that we are glorified is through being sanctified. And so, as the writer of Hebrews is saying here, there is a, a perfection because of what Christ has done. And, and we see that in two dimensions. And this is vitally important because this is true of you who are believing. God now looks at you, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and says, perfect by my every measure. That is your legal standing before the throne of God. Not good, not good enough. Perfect. It is a declared statement, definitive sanctification. Those who belong to God, who are set apart as belonging to God. Those who are believing in Jesus Christ, God says, perfect. Now, you can look into the mirror and look into your life, and I look in the mirror and look in my life, and I know that they're far from perfect. I not only have regrets from the past, but I you know, have them from the present, and quite sure I'll have them here in the near future. Sin is still alive within me, but the record of it is now expunged. We see that in part, he remembers our sins no more. We'll look at that in a moment. But he's saying, because you're in Christ, you're covered by the blood of Christ, you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, God's, your record, your standing before God is you are already declared perfect. And so there's a definitive aspect to this. Now, there's also an ongoing aspect of this as well, and it's evident in this particular passage, in this particular verse. So you're declared perfect, but God is at work in the process of making you what he has already declared you. And we see that again in this passage, because this is by a single offering, he has perfected for all time. 
So it's not like you hit perfection today, but the sun's going to come back tomorrow and God's going to say, okay, well, you know, you messed up, so you're no longer perfect. You're declared perfect for all time. But those who are being sanctified, which indicates to us that God is at work, there's a process by which we die to our sin and we grow more and more to have our lives conform to the righteousness that God requires. Our lives more and more look like the life of Jesus Christ. Now, it's not a straight line. It's quite squiggly. But over time, we see our values change. We see our desires change. We see a hunger for God, delight in Him, God's grace. And as a result of that, everything begins to change. And we more and more, over time, as we're being sanctified, moving towards glorified, glorified is the other word for, or for perfection, God has begun to work in those who believe. He's declared you perfect, and He's at work making you perfect. Now, because... Uh, of the fact that all of us struggle with sin, we still have this difficulty. I mean, if we listen to this, we think about what he's saying here. This is an absolutely incredible, incredible statement. The writer of Hebrews is not just kind of drawing this out of nowhere. He's actually drawing upon uh, the promises that are found in, in Jeremiah chapter 31, uh, the promises that are associated with the new covenant, which are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But we need to stop for, for just a moment and think... How many animals would you need to sacrifice to become perfect for all time? How many good works do you need to do, you know, to measure to be a good person? Not, not to be a good person, but to be perfect. I mean, you can keep doing them, but you're never going to get there because even if you do an incredible number of good works, there's things that we don't do and there's things that we do that we ought not do. How many religious rituals? And even spiritual disciplines can you engage in, or must you engage in, in order to be perfect? And the answer is we, we can't be perfected by them. Our only hope is that we are declared perfect, and that he who began a good work is at work within us. And that reason that we can buy this is because what he also says here is that he remembers our sin no Now, it's important that we understand what he means by remembers no more. As I've, I've, it was just two weeks ago, anyway, two weeks ago in dog years or whatever. Um, but uh, and we, we talked about forgiveness. It's not that God doesn't have an awareness and he doesn't know that I have sin in my life. And the illustration I use then and I use frequently is this. Is I know that I have sin in my past and even in my present and so if God doesn't know, but I know, that would mean that I know something that God doesn't know. This is not a cognitive issue. This is a legal issue. And God, when he says, I will remember no more, he's saying it's no longer, it will never be brought up. It's never going to be used as an accusation against you. That's an important thing to understand as well. Because there are many, many people that are crippled, even debilitated by the regrets of sins of their past. And the haunting voice that you have in your head that constantly talks about, you know, you're worthless. You think that you're a Christian. You, you're trying to be a good person. Just remember what you did. Would a good person do those things? That voice that so many people struggle with. And, and when they listen to it, 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 it is. It's condemning and it's debilitating. One of the things that we can recognize is if God says, I'm not going to bring it up anymore, that that voice is not coming from God. It's not coming from his Holy Spirit. It may be coming from your own guilt. It may be coming from the enemy, but it's not coming from God. Because he remembers our sin no more. 
as we're trusting in what Jesus Christ has done for us. And one of the things I think that this particular verse and the passage as a whole calls us to do is, is this, is to do with our sin, in a sense, what God has done with our sin, which is forget about it. Not to forget that you have sin, because you know, there, there's an important, and the Holy Spirit reminds us that we have sin, but the Holy Spirit reminds us that we have sin so that we can confess it, repent of it, go to Christ and be reminded of the incredible gift of his sacrifice on our behalf. But the Holy Spirit does that so that we do that and now we move on. And, you know, it doesn't debilitate it. So forget about it in the same way that God forgets about it. And some of us need that. We need to recognize that you're set free. Your sin doesn't define you. Your failures are, are, are not your identity if you're in Christ. And so you have these two incredible promises that you've been declared perfect and that you are a work in process. And the things that would trip us up is these feelings of guilt or even the, the failures that we have. God says, I'm gonna, I don't use those against you. Jesus has already paid that sacrifice once for all time. So all of your efforts to make sacrifices or to make up for what you've done, it's kind of like, as Jerry Bridges calls it, a performance treadmill. You know, you can try really hard, but you're not going to get anywhere. All of us who are trying to strive, we're, we're like hamsters on a wheel. We can wear ourselves out, maybe even give ourselves a heart attack, but we're not going to get anywhere, not going to get any better. The only way that we progress is by God's grace, which is at work within those whom he has called and, and those who believe. Many people hear the message of Christianity is stop it, do better, try harder. And it's not that there's no place in the scripture because there's a lot of things where the scriptures give us instruction, practical, and, you know, I'll give the summary, stop doing stupid things. Do the things that are wise, that are beneficial. There's a lot of those, but that is never, that is not the central message of the scripture. The central message of the scripture that the writer of Hebrews wants us to grasp and to cling to is this, turn your eyes and your heart and your hope to Jesus. Because he has already accomplished everything on our behalf and he's at work in making us who he has already declared us to be. My favorite Disney movie is The Ugly Dachshund. It's a spin off of the old tale of the ugly duckling, except no ducks and no swans. It's just Dachshund and a Great Dane. Having had Great Danes my whole life, um, I particularly enjoy that. I, I find it amusing and, you know, uh, in that. But for those who are not familiar with the story, um, have not, not seen the film, um, a guy and his wife, they, uh, his, the wife was uh, a breeder and, and showed her Dachshunds in, in dog shows. And he, he regularly is helping out and he takes the, uh, takes the dogs to, to the vet. And, uh, and when uh, the... The mother, um, Dachshund, was about to deliver a litter. Uh, and so while he was there, the, the veterinarian said that there was a, a Great Dane that also had delivered more than she could possibly feed and wondered if he would take the Great Dane along with the, the Dachshunds. And so without telling his wife, he, he does, and he brings home the, the litter of Dachshunds and one Great Dane puppy. When he gets home, his wife says, why does that one look so weird? You know, Great Dane puppies are, you know, actually quite small. Relatively small, surprisingly small. I did learn when we moved here, when we had to put our Great Dane into foster care uh, for it, um, that there's a whole lot of foster need for Great Danes because apparently people get Great Danes and then they find out they get big. 
And so they give them up, thinking, and these people drive and vote and everything. But that's so, anyway, um, so you watch the story, and the Great Dane just keeps on growing and growing and growing, and you know, doesn't take long before you know, the guy's wife figures out that's not a dachshund. That's not just an ugly dachshund, that's something else entirely. And the movie goes on, and I won't spoil the whole thing, because if you know the ugly duckling story, you know how the whole thing is. But at the end of the movie as a whole, the Great Dane is a beautiful, beautiful creature. The dachshunds are fine, too, if you like dachshunds. But it's a beautiful, beautiful creature uh, who actually becomes an award-winning in shows as well. And I think that what the point that I have for that, too, is that God has already begun a good work in you. He's declared you perfect. He is sanctifying you to make you perfect. He is remembering your sin no more. And so part of what it is that you and I need to do is to just allow God to be at work and grow into who he is making you to be. Having been declared perfect and in process of being perfected by God, press forward knowing that he who began that work will continue it until he is done. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks to you this day for your promises, the promises of grace, and the, and the, and the promises that have been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ who offered himself as the sacrifice on our behalf. Lord, enable us to believe, some who are here perhaps for the first time, others who do believe but struggle to believe, which is common for many of us. Help us to rest in what Christ has done. Help us to be awed at your love and your grace. Help us to live in light and the power of it. That we may grow and we may become perfect, even as you've declared us. To you, we give praise and thanks.